Hi, everybody. I'm Chris Chang and Phillips, and this is Let's Find Out Live. If, if at any point I tear up, this topic like goes really close to my heart. So I'm already feeling myself getting like emotional about humans and nature. So you might see that a couple times today. All right. Let's Find Out is a podcast about the history of Edmonton, Alberta, or Amiskwichi, Wiskaigon, on Treaty 6 territory. We take questions from curious Edmontonians about local history, and then we find out the answers together. And Let's Find Out is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. Thank you to the uh, Podcast Network members that are here. That's great. Um, this episode, How Nature Shapes Us. It starts here at a little bar restaurant called The Almanac, where we are recording live. Everybody say hi to the listeners at home hearing this in the future. <laughs> the theme of today's event is kind of a misdirection, because we're going to talk about the two-way street, how humans and the rest of nature shape each other. The idea for this kind of came to me on a beach last summer on the Labor Day weekend. Um, reading this book about humans and nature and just really, really wanting to be part of the big thing and looking at horse tails. And, but it also kind of has its roots in a creek that really bothered me in university. So it's called Jackson Creek. I went to Trent University in Peterborough, Ontario. And you could see this creek running through these nice wetlands and the dog park. And then it just disappeared underground once it got downtown, actually under a car wash. And I tried asking around, but no one I met seemed to know why the creek went underground or where it went before it presumably fed into this river a couple blocks away. So I sort of chewed on it the whole time I was at school. And then once I was about to graduate, I was trying to decide, like, what's my last story going to be for the student newspaper there? And I thought, OK, this is the time. I'm going to start digging into this. And I met this conservationist, uh, and she showed me that the whole layout of downtown Peterborough is connected to that creek. European settlers started displacing the Mississauga Anishinaabe people there around 200 years ago to build a settlement. Hello, colonialism. Um, and those settlers were looking for a way to get power for new industries. And there was this creek that was reasonably slow and manageable compared to the fast river beside it. So the city started growing there between the river and the creek to take advantage of that slowish water flow for hydropower. And you could even see that some blocks in Peterborough are still wider today to accommodate where the creek used to wind back and forth. And eventually, businesses covered it up and started dredging the swamps and the islands that were at the foot of the creek. And now it mostly runs unseen underneath parkades and a car wash. But I just found that amazing that the creek shaped the whole layout of the city. And then the city shaped the creek right back. These relationships with the rest of nature are everywhere if we look for them. Why are mountain ash trees all over the river valley in Edmonton? There's a story there about specific people from a specific place who brought them here. Why does Edmonton have such rich soil? That's a story about humans and bison and grass and fire. Why was Fort Edmonton moved four times, including one last move uphill off the river flats? How did private golf courses get a foothold in the river valley? Why are so many of our protected areas, parklands, why are they in places with steep elevation changes instead of on flat land? If you were to overlay maps of coal mines from 100 years ago over the city today, what would that reveal or explain about the way that the city is laid out? You see, we're often told, or we tell ourselves, that humans are not only innately bad for nature, we're somehow separate from it. And that is boring. 
and self-defeating and wrong. I think if you're here today, you kind of get why that's boring and wrong. Uh, like Cree and Blackfoot and Dene and Nakota Sioux and Soto and Métis people and their ancestors have been here for millennia, and maybe there are some things to learn about how they've nurtured so much life on the land here. But it's maybe less obvious why thinking of humans as bad is self-defeating. The biggest reason is because it makes us powerless. It stops us from even trying to interact with the land in other ways, from drawing inspiration from the living world to build our myths, giving names to the life that we encounter, building wetlands and food forests, living together with big predators like bears and wolves. We grew up here with everything else around us. We're a part of it all. And asking questions about our historical relationships with this land can reveal how much we're bound to the rest of the planet. So, we are gonna do a whole season of Let's Find Out about how humans and nature have shaped each other here. And today, after we feed your brains and your souls a little bit, you're going to help us generate the questions to make that season. This whole endeavor is only possible through the generous support of a couple organizations, Taproot Edmonton and the Edmonton Historical Board. So I would like to invite Mac Mail from Taproot to explain uh, what Taproot is and why the heck they decided to support this uh, wild idea to cover what uh, Karen Unland from Taproot has affectionately called the biophilia beat. Thank you, Chris. Hi, everyone. I'm Mac. I'm the co-founder of Taproot Edmonton, along with Karen, who you may have met on the way in. And together, we're building the future of local media right here in Edmonton. And we think that curiosity is really central to the future of media, which is why we're big fans of Let's Find Out. And we're so excited to be working with Chris for the upcoming season. Uh, if you, some of you are already Taproot members, so thank you so much for your support. Uh, for the rest of you, if you'd like to join Taproot, sharing your curiosity with us is one of the things that we need to do good journalism here in Edmonton. And we'd love to have your support. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you also to Ask for a Better World. Um, Ask for a Better World builds the right collaborative team to tackle projects with a carbon neutral, net zero, or regenerative design focus, which is what the world desperately needs more of right now. Um, and they provided that uh, delicious food that you uh, had the chance to nibble earlier. So um, uh, Shafraz Kaba from Ask for a Better World is here today. If you have any questions, Shafraz, can we have a hand? Yeah, he's the man to ask about. Thank you. So this is gonna be a bit of an interactive afternoon. Uh, we have three short talks coming up about how humans and nature have shaped each other here in Edmonton. And then we're gonna play a little game with those cards and stickers you collected when you came in. And finally, we're gonna collect your questions in our uh, IRL story garden. But to get things started, we're gonna do a little icebreaker. So I want you to uh, take a minute and turn to your neighbor and talk about a time that you experienced something wild. All right, come. This season, I have a new co-conspirator, Trevor Chow Fraser. Hi, how are you doing? Is our new erstwhile production associate. Trevor went around the room to eavesdrop on people's wild experiences. It was the, the only time I've ever seen a wolf, and I knew I'd, I'd never seen one before, and I knew instantly what it was. And it was like probably a hundred yards down the road, and it was just like the way it was moving, its body shape, everything, just crouching along, and in the in the silence and the snow and everything. So then I stopped, and it was um, actually mink. It was a mink family, and so 
there was two adults, um, and one of them had a mouse in its mouth, and it was going into their little den, and there were two young ones, and they like popped up, they would come really close to me, because they were very curious, and then as soon as we made eye contact, they would just dash away. So that was pretty funny, because I've never seen them so up close, and it's not, you don't often see like weasel family right. a lot. So. As soon as I felt the barbed wire, everything stopped. I have a friend who had a, like had a swimming pool. We lived on along Ada Boulevard, and he had a swimming pool. And every now and then, it actually happened in the springtime. Sometimes skunks would come in and try and get. A, I don't. I guess they wanted a drink or something, and then they would fall in. And then it was his job to take the the net and go and grab them, scoop them out, and bring them over again and dump them off on the side by the along the edge where the bush was. So I don't know if the mother was there or not. But he used it. It was a very smelly experience every springtime. Did everybody get a chance to either share or hear a story? Yes? Awesome. Okay. Well, with all that in mind, we're going to hear from our first speaker about a place that many Edmontonians cherish as a kind of wild place in the city, the valley along the banks of the North Saskatchewan River. Marlena Wyman is a visual artist and the City of Edmonton's fifth historian laureate. <laughs> she worked as the audiovisual archivist at the Provincial Archives of Alberta for many years. Marlena is going to talk about how humans have shaped nature in a historical context, specifically urban, specifically Edmonton, and she'll talk about how our green spaces haven't always been so green and about the early Edmontonians who worked to beautify our city through volunteer citizen efforts. Marlena Wyman. Thank you, fourth historian laureate. <laughs> uh, good afternoon, everyone. And it's nice to see all these warm hearts on a naturally cold day. And as Chris said, I'm going to talk a bit about how humans have shaped nature. And there are always lots of examples of how we've done it badly. And I'll talk about those. But I'm also going to try and find some balance and talk about some more positive stories, too. And I hope that I might also make you think about what is a natural urban area. So the green spaces of our city that Edmontonians value today were originally the lands of indigenous and Métis people. In particular, the story of the Papas Chase Band is an important one. They lost their entire reserve in South Edmonton under very questionable circumstances, and their treatment by all levels of government was shameful. It's worth learning about that part of Edmonton's land history. And actually, I found on, on the Edmonton, uh, FortEdmontonPark.ca website, if you search Papa's Chase, there's a really good overview article there. We'll give you some background about how all this started. As Chris said, I'm a visual artist, and I was a longtime archivist at the Provincial Archives of Alberta. And last year, I created an indoor garden art installation and exhibit of paintings about Gladys Reeves, who is one of my Edmonton heroes and other early Edmontonians who worked to beautify our city through volunteer citizen efforts, such as planting gardens in vacant lots for weed control and beautification, for relief gardens during the Depression, and for victory gardens during the wars. Gladys Reeves was the first female president, and this is one of my favorite titles, names of an association. She was the first female president of the Edmonton Horticultural and Vacant Lot Garden Association. And she was very involved in this vacant lot initiative. Gladys was also one of the founders of the Edmonton Tree Planting Committee. 
and they planted thousands of trees from the 1920s to the 1940s, many of which are the mature trees that grace our boulevards in central Edmonton today. During Edmonton's formative years, Gladys and other citizens lobbied to preserve our city's river valleys and advocated for the recovery of parts of the river valley and ravines that had been lost to industry and garbage dumps. You may be surprised to know that some of our present-day beloved natural areas used to be dumps, literally. Gerson Hill, Gallagher Park Hill, Rat Creek in the Dawson Park and Canard Ravine area, Harlack Park, and Mill Creek Ravine all used to serve as garbage dumps. In the city's efforts to clean up the garbage dumps, garbage incinerators were built in the ravines in River Valley, but that didn't really work out as well as they were hoping. So those were eventually and thankfully removed as well. The ravines in River Valley also served functions of shanty towns and industrial sites for coal mines, lumber yards, brick factories, meat packing plants, and gravel pits. After those were cleaned up, a new assault was begun with plans for freeways through our ravines in River Valley. Those plans were thankfully abandoned as well due to intense citizen protest. Now, some of Chris's past Let's Find Out podcasts explore some of these topics, so go listen to them actually right after today's event for some continuity. They are, uh, they are some great podcasts. And I actually listened to all of them before I came today, Chris. Not, okay, not every single podcast. <laughs> but I'm getting there. Uh, Gladys Reeves and her gang were also proponents for Edmonton to adopt the standards of the City Beautiful Movement, which was an international urban planning concept that first emerged from the 1893 Chicago World's Fair and was popular in Canada until 1930 when the Great Depression finally ended the financial feasibility of the movement. City Beautiful promoted harmonious social order through city livability, planned green spaces, and classic architecture to counteract unsightly industry, pollution, and congestion that had become the face of urban living. The wars and then the depression ended hopes for Edmonton's City Beautiful plan, which had been drawn up by Morrell and Nichols architects in 1915. That plan envisioned magnificent green spaces and an elegant civic center all in downtown Edmonton. Uh, you can actually go and look at those plans in the city archives, and it's very interesting to see how Edmonton could have looked had the plan been implemented and retained. During the early years, city officials saw the value of citizens' efforts and supported the, I have to say it again, Edmonton Horticultural and Bacon Lots Garden Association <laughs> and the Tree Planting Committee with financial and administrative assistance. Unfortunately, not all later city councils and administrators were as enlightened, and swaths of the boulevard trees that Gladys Reeves and her tree planting committee first planted by hand in the 1920s were cleared and severely cut back in the 1940s. However, public outcry halted the completion of the tree clearing plan. As a 1947 Edmonton Journal article stated, a love of trees is a fine thing. We on the prairies and in prairie cities have been urged for many years to plant them. He, and they're referring to the park superintendent of the time here, should be able to sympathize with the strong desire of many to make and keep Edmonton a city of trees. Edmontonians are justifiably proud that we have one of the most extensive urban parks in North America. Citizen activists have come together over the years to lobby the city to keep the river valleys and ravines as natural as possible with only limited construction of discrete trails, benches, and pedestrian bridges. Now, I've kept minimal. These built additions can actually work to benefit nature, 
uh, by helping to make the spaces more accessible and therefore encouraging appreciation, enjoyment, and preservation. So not just historically, but constantly, new challenge to our green spaces appear. Some that are happening right now include proposed solar plants in the river valley in plain sight of trails and in areas rich in archaeological artifacts. Now, notably in 1985, the city passed the River Valley Bylaw to protect the River Valley Park System, which states, as Edmonton grows and changes, and as land becomes more valuable, the River Valley may become threatened by commercial and industrial uses, as well as by civic uses such as public utilities. And I, I feel like the city needs to go back and revisit that bylaw. Another threat is the proposed destruction of a mature canopy of more than 1,600 trees to make way for the proposed Valley Line West LRT route. And the University of Alberta Farm, a rare agricultural oasis in an urban setting, is under threat of sale and development. Now, the first two pose an interesting quandary because they are essentially beneficial projects, public transportation and renewable energy. But is the destruction of natural spaces necessary as a trade? Are there not alternatives, such as brownfields and rooftops, that could be used for solar energy panels? And could alternate LRT routes be found? Something that we can learn from the advocacy efforts of early citizens is that the job is never done. We can never become complacent, nor can we take what we have for granted. We have the power as individuals to speak up against the destruction of our beloved and valued natural spaces. The City of Edmonton's website has a, a public engagement section that provides many ways to have our voices heard. Check their online calendar to see what public engagement sessions are happening and when. But hand in hand with that goes what is often forgotten as our duty as citizens, one in which early citizens were much more active, step up and do things ourselves rather than simply blaming the city. So for example, take a bag with you on your walks and pick up garbage. Water the city tree on the boulevard in front of your house. Buy your plants from nurseries that don't use neonicotinoids, and that's the pesticide that kills bees. Plant a tree, or a hundred. Edmonton actually has a tree planting program where they provide up to 100 tree seedlings for citizens to plant in approved areas, and they even provide you with shovels. So have a tree planting party instead of a wine tasting party, or better yet, have a tree planting party and then taste some wine. <laughs> Organic, of course. Thanks, Marlena. I, I was intrigued about this topic because I had the privilege of seeing some of the artwork that she made about Gladys Reeves and the other citizens in that organization. But you can't see any of them because they all sold, which is amazing. <laughs> um, so since that first story tells us a little bit about how people here have shaped a landscape, our next talk pivots us a bit into thinking about how the landscapes we live in shape us. I adore this speaker and her brain, and I think you will too. Miranda Lucas is a PhD candidate at the University of Lethbridge with a concentration in evolution and human behavior. She works with the Lichen Lab there. For her master's work, she studied the behavior of wild vervet monkeys in South Africa. She's expanding that work now through her PhD, looking at human behavior in Canadian art galleries. And she's going to talk to us about how the environment shapes our behavior. Miranda Lucas. Hello. Thank you so much.
so much for that introduction, Chris. Um, it's a pleasure to be here today with all of you. I'm a really big fan of the podcast. Um, so as Chris mentioned in the introduction, um, I work with a group in, at the University of Lethbridge called the Lichen Lab. And we are a group of artists and scientists that work together and we focus on uh, behavior. And it's really important to stress uh, exactly what I mean by that, and that is that these are observable actions. So typically, um, if you think about the classic psychology study, um, you I think of uh, a participant in an artificial experimental setting. And what happens when we put people in those situations, there are demand characteristics placed on them. So. For good or for ill, um, people tend to try to figure out what you want from them as an experimenter, and they try to give it to you. So for that reason, we don't ask people any questions, more or less. We just look at what they do, because we see a big difference in what people tell us versus what people actually do in the real world um, versus in these artificial lab settings. And that's not to dis artificial lab settings experiments. They serve a purpose. Um, but we are just focusing on, again, observable actions in the real world. So with that in mind, as a departure point, I wanted to introduce one theory to you today called behavior settings theory. And I think this will really help inform our talk and generating some questions later on. So behavior settings theory. Uh, was originally um, put forward by this guy, Roger Barker, in the 1950s. And what it proposes, the main tenant, is that the setting that you are in is more important than the person that you are. So essentially, think about uh, the behavior of people in a grocery store. A grocery store is a really clear behavior setting. So by and large, what you are going to do in a grocery store is you are going to pick up your groceries, you're going to look at them, maybe you put them back, you'll eventually put them in your cart, make your way to the front. Um, everyone's behavior is very predictable, and that is by design, by design of the setting. And this is irrespective of your whether you're an introvert, whether you are from a high or low socioeconomic status, or your heritage. Um, where you are is more important than who you are. Now, these rules, these social rules, are usually for our own safety, <laughs> so that we can feel comfortable and not, um, say, run each other over in the road. Um, it's important to have clear rules. It makes us feel comfortable um, and also safe. Uh, but sometimes these settings they kind of get away from us, and they tend to not serve us anymore. So what I would like you to take away from this today is the idea that humans create these behavior settings, but we also, um, we, are we are a proponent of these settings as well. So we maintain the setting through following the rules. And sometimes there is a good reason, like for instance, with a road. Now imagine roads in Edmonton, for example. Uh, there, were, there was a time when they were just dirt roads and the main purpose was to walk on them. Uh, however, as time moved on and technology moved forward, um, now we have the introduction of horses, then bikes, then cars. Now, all of a sudden, cars are the main mode of transportation on the road and we need a new set of rules. Now, more recently, we're introducing 
bike lanes. So although this sort of positive feedback loop with behavior settings can seem like something that's very difficult to interrupt, it's not impossible. And it is through our behavior, it is through our actions that we can interrupt that positive feedback loop. Um, so I'll give you one more example. Um, think about your lawn, if you are so fortunate as to have a backyard or a front yard, where we have this um, immense amount of green grass. Now, how much time goes into managing that green grass? How much water? Uh, does that serve you? And why are you maintaining that? Are you maintaining it because of the social, maybe the neighborhood context where you feel like that is the right thing to do, that is the safe thing to do? But maybe it's not. And if it doesn't serve you, maybe we shouldn't do it and we should find an alternative. So I'll leave you with this final thought. Um, I was recently in a YouTube wormhole the other day, as you do, and uh, I came across this video of all the times that Russell Brand, the actor and musician, um, trolled TV announcers. And uh, so this one TV announcer says, Russell, what do you think of the situation in Catalonia? in Spain with the independence movement there. And he said, you know, I don't like that people are getting hurt, but the idea of a country is just a concept. Um, and if it doesn't serve you, then blow it off. Thank you. Thanks, Miranda. We'll get to our third speaker in a moment. But first, Let's Find Out is brought to you by the Edmonton Community Foundation, makers of a great show called The Well-Endowed Podcast, which I am now making some history stories for if you need even more Edmonton history trivia, or if you just need to mainline historical factoids. My first piece is about a building called Hilltop House, where the Edmonton Community Foundation is based today. But a century ago when it was built, it was part of like this family estate on the block with the father and the son and the grandparents all owning places on one street. And it's kind of wild that this one building has survived all the changes downtown over the past hundred years. It's like an ecological refugee, kind of like an avocado. If that joke means anything to you, or if you want to hear more History Bites on the Well Endowed podcast and hear their other great stories, go to thewellendowedpodcast.com or go to your podcatcher of choice. The episode with that Hilltop House story is episode 37, and one of our next speakers, Hunter Cardinal, is on that episode too. Let's Find Out is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. And hey, we just found out that two of our members won Canadian Podcast Awards. The Bothy Storytelling Podcast won for Outstanding Arts Series. It's made by Callum Lycan. The Bothy is a show all about the craft of storytelling, and Callum's Scottish lilt is really fun to listen to. I'm actually having to restrain myself from imitating it here. And the other one that won was Cross Pollination, which won for Outstanding Business Series. Cross Pollination interviews folks in stuff like design, ski and snowboard manufacturing, data visualization, and they have a cute bee thing going on. We unfortunately did not win the documentary award that we were nominated for, but it means a lot that so many of you there voted for us. We were up against multiple true crime podcasts, and the show that won was a CBC true crime show. At this point, we're not planning on turning Let's Find Out into a true crime podcast, but you never know. Anyway, to catch The Bothy and Cross Pollination and all the other cool Alberta Podcast Network shows, go to albertapodcastnetwork.com. All right, back to the show. Thank you. 
last talk this afternoon invites us to think about the stories that we tell about this land and how they shape our relationships with the rest of nature. We have two speakers, siblings who just finished a run of a really beautiful play that was sad and sweet and they made it together and it was called The Lake of Strangers and I'm sorry you missed it. Um, <laughs> it was exciting and fresh and I just loved seeing what these two made. Um, so Jacqueline and Hunter Cardinal are co-owners of Nahewin. They focus on using indigenous principles to help Canadians take steps towards respectful diversity and inclusion. And in their talk, they'll be exploring how indigenous concepts of connection have helped them better understand their connection to themselves and their surroundings. Jacqueline and Hunter Cardinal. Ahau niu tu temitoa kiata meskatanawa. Greetings, my friends. The flame of my spirit greets the flame of yours. I am Jacqueline Cardinal. And I am Hunter Cardinal. No relation. Um, just kidding, we're siblings. We were I, so excited to meet yeah. that. <laughs> We'd been planning that for months. Um, so we are Sagewe Inuak, an indigenous people from the Lesser Slave Lake region. Uh, indigenous comes from the word, uh, the Latin word, Indigena, 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 there we go. I've been trying to change that word for months as well. Anyways, indigena, which means sprung from the land. So the question of how nature shapes us and how we shape nature is a question among many that we've pondered growing up as indigenous youth, because we've always felt separated from our culture because of the fact that we live here in Edmonton today, which is a city. Um, often our dad would say, well, hey now, what do you call a crow that lives in the city? A crow! Boo. It was a dad joke. Boo. And that's our talk, thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, like, we get what he was trying to say, which is that the land is here too, and that we can be and become indigenous here just as well as anywhere else. We don't need to go back to the res, for example. So um, in our work with our company, Nehaewin, um, we've really taken some time to solidify the understanding and try to apply it in our work. So um, we have been especially working with um, our own contemporary and traditional knowledge to apply it to our contemporary problems that we're experiencing today um, as indigenous and non-indigenous people. Um, and one of the things that we learned early on that we've kind of uh, worked on uh, deepening is that this idea that you know indigenous people have been here for 10,000 years at least, depending on who you talk to, um, and that we didn't at all uh, ascribe to this idea of the pristine wilderness. Um, and in fact, indigenous peoples across Turtle Island definitely had a kind of uh, interesting understanding of uh, the universe, our, our, our nature, um, and ourselves as being in a dynamic relationship. And, uh, and that dynamic relationship existed between people, between the land and people, between animals and land and people, between everything and everyone. Yeah, and actually the, the idea that indigenous people treated the land as something to be left untouched is actually a foreign one. And actually is the basis for terra nullius. Um, which is a very happy law that, and understanding, which was the justification for European domination of the Americas and the dispossession of, of land from the indigenous peoples. Um, because basically they're like, well, they're not really using the land to make houses and factories and goods to trade and have economic purpose, like how we see it. And, and really, people who don't do that aren't really people, so it's fine if we just kind of take the land. Um, uh, so, which, I, there's no laughs about that except one. 
I, I laughed. Yeah, we're yeah. just like, <laughs> that's silly. Um, it's okay. No, no one thinks that right now in this room. Um, it's totally fine. Um, the reality uh, couldn't, of course, be farther from that. Um, in fact, um, our favorite stories of what it was really like, um, which actually contextualizes the two of us and what we enjoy, um, are the oral histories from the journey of Lewis and Clark traveling up the Rockies, watching indigenous peoples um, just casually light trees that are just oozing with sap on fire and then watching the trees explode <laughs> just for fun. Uh, some of my other favorite stories are how the indigenous peoples of the plains routinely created large fires to control the environment and maintain ungulate ranges. And ungulate is a cool word because it reminds you of that big spider in Lord of the Rings. Um, <laughs> So they were definitely not touching all rocks. I got a couple. Uh, all rocks and trees saying that, oh, these things are so sacred and they have, each one has a spirit and a name like in Pocahontas. Um, but also two years ago, um, I met with a Cree astronomer named Wilfred Buck. And he told me about this concept of Misawa. Misawa is our Cree concept of infinity and is made in reference to the stories woven into the stars that we know already as well as the stories that are left to be created and shared for our time. And furthermore, what we also learned is that our word for people, or humans, is aisinawak, which directly translates into little creators. So we, everyone in this room, are little creators, not little inheritors of the land to do as little to it as possible. We are the stewards of the land, and, but we must also let the land steward us. So as Chris mentioned, uh, last week we wrapped up Lake the Strangers. Yay, we, we, we did. Um, our, so our first play about the stories of our people. And when we actually agreed to give this talk, which I won't say when because it will show how late we were working on it, um, we were working on some rewrites of the script. And uh, one part actually came to both of our minds. It was kind of weird and synchronistic um, when we were thinking about what to actually talk about here today. Um, there was a moment when one of the main characters says to another character that in the afterlife, he's actually okay because... He forgot that it went all around like a net. All things that happened, all the things that will happen. They're all right next to each other, all caught up together. We just forget because it's weird right now. So this was a synthesis of our understanding of our interconnectedness with each other, to the land, to all things, and across time. And that we may seem to have forgotten that truth because of how challenging things are at this time in history. So from an indigenous perspective, the question of how nature shapes us and how we shape nature is one central to how we try to navigate the world. And we thought that the message we kind of wanted to leave with you all today and in the future, sure, sure, um, is that we are meant to be here. Uh, we are meant to grow and change just as the world grows and changes too because as an elder once told me, remember that we are never stewarding the earth. We are the earth stewarding herself. Thanks. Hi, hi. Thank you, Jacqueline Hunter. All right, so uh, we're gonna play a little game now um, that I'm calling Conceptual Speed Dating. As you arrived, you got a little card with a concept or idea on it like disaster, or erosion, or migrate, or garden. So you're gonna be moving around with your card in hand, 
asking other people what's on their card and seeing what questions those ideas together make you curious about. For example, let's say you had disaster, somebody else has erosion, and maybe that makes you wonder, have humans caused any erosion in the river valley that's made any disasters like floods worse? Or did that happen sometime in the past and then we figured out how to get a handle on erosion here? Another example, maybe three of you put your cards together and you've got habitat and migrate and garden. And maybe you're curious, like, all those people who plant gardens in the city, has that affected the migration of birds or butterflies? What's the earliest evidence of people here planting stuff to help out migrating birds and butterflies? Some combinations will be duds. They will not work together. <laughs> Some combinations will work in threes or fours. The goal here is to go for quantity, and the way that you'll keep track of talking to a bunch of different people is that every time you put your card together with someone else, they will give you one of their stickers and you will give them one of yours. So you put that sticker that they gave you on your card, and the first person to get five different types of stickers wins a prize, which is we have asked Josh up front to make a special cocktail for today called the Anthropocene. <laughs> so bring your card up to uh, myself or to Trevor, and you will win a free cocktail on us. Um... Wow, a lot of excitement about the cocktail. This is really cool. <laughs> Go, conceptual speed dating. Again, erstwhile production associate Trevor Chow Fraser headed out into the audience with a mic to hear what people came up with. That's mine. The Capilano apricot. Okay, I have a question about the history and genesis of the Capilano apricot and what other plants can only be found in Edmonton. <laughs> I like it. Cool. Cool, hey? I would also like to plant a Capilano apricot. Biomass energy. You can burn forest waste to make. shifting and changing and succession and things have always moved around to a certain extent. Humans have clearly accelerated that. Um, and influenced things that some species have actually gained right. gained from human intervention. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Like yeah. mosquitoes. Well, I wasn't sure, thinking like of mosquitoes. mosquitoes. Sparrows, sparrows, pigeons, cats, yeah. rats. rats. Often but dogs. Not yeah, dogs. not in Alberta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of dogs. Yeah. Well, flowers, right? El elm trees in the city of Edmonton, right? Yeah, butterflies. It's a very interesting thing. Streets. I always thought about like how is it? Like, how did we create streets? I know that we created it in a grid system, but like, how does nature eventually shape the streets that we're in? You know what I mean? Like. Under the streets, right, right. and um, 
lady was talking about how the soil underneath the streets, when the streets are are ill-maintained, how the weeds and, and the plants come up from the soil and reclaim the streets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And all of a nature always just pops up in, in the streets. And I don't like, I don't like things like potholes. I'm like, the streets are not indestructible. They're just, something will affect it regardless of what it is. Right. <laughs> yeah. We have a winner, Corey Sanderson! Woo! Any disasters caused by wilderness? Is there like an un, unordinate amount of disasters in wilderness or is it like a myth? That's a good one. Yeah. Um, have natural disasters created wildernesses by preventing like human settlements in those areas? Better. Right. I probably get. I'm a little bit curious about what an Anthropocene uh, cocktail really is. What would you imagine? Oh, geez, this is really a philosophical question. I feel like um, I imagine, you know, only man-made products. Probably no uh, fruit or vegetable <laughs> or actual water. Um, I'm thinking like pop and. I'm not a very imaginative cocktail person, obviously, but I'm thinking pop and like a serious booze. Yeah? I would, I guess, because the Anthropocene is a geological era. Okay. So I think it would be very earthy. Be a very earthy drink. Okay. All right. I see that. I feel like my. Uh, my uh, knee-jerk response in uh, all man-made products and the level of judgment in my voice when I explain that definitely go in the opposite direction of Chris's uh, sort of opening line of uh, humans are not bad. <laughs> yeah, so uh, if I were to revise my, <laughs> my response, I'd, I'd do something closer to yours. No, I bet, I mean, I think it would be like earthy, but like the metallic aftertaste maybe. Yeah. And and carbonated? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. Thank you for indulging that game. I had no idea how that would go. Before you rush up with your questions, I just want to say thank you so much for coming out. I had, again, no idea how any of this would go, so I'm really glad that um, you were all so into it. Um, to those of you eventually hearing this at home, thanks for listening. Let's Find Out is produced by Trevor Chow Fraser and me, Chris Chengin Phillips. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. You can download all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher, and also at letsfindoutpodcast.com. Thanks to all of you who added new reviews on Apple Podcasts. I know some of you are in this room. Thank you. It actually means a ton, um, and they're very lovely to read, no matter what you say, and it helps a lot with attracting new listeners. If you're looking for other ways to support the show and to kind of stay in our circle, um, number one, sign up to become a Taproot member. Honestly, you will help make more of the show if you do that, so um, please do that. Um, number two, we're starting a newsletter. Um, we'll only send out stuff a couple times a month. You'll hear updates about episodes that we're working on and live stuff like this. And number three, 
we're doing a book club this season. So if you've been following on Facebook or Instagram lately, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I've been posting about the books that have been inspiring me to create this season. The idea is I'm gonna pick one of these books per month and if you're interested, we'll meet up and talk about them and we'll be making little mini-sodes from our discussion. Um, if that's of interest, let me know when you get that newsletter email or you can indicate that on the sheet that's up at the front. Uh, I just wanna do like a brief reading from one of the books. Um, so this is Dreamwork by Mary Oliver. Mom, this is your book. Thank you for, again, letting me borrow one of your books. Uh, Mary Oliver was an American poet. Um, who here already loves Mary Oliver? Yeah. So she passed away this year, which was, was very sad. Um, but her poems, I think, continue to give a lot of us a sense of grounding in the, the living world. Um, so this is uh, I, one of her classics, Wild Geese. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for 100 miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Thank you to our amazing speakers for today, Marlena Wyman, Miranda Lucas, Jacqueline Cardinal, and Hunter Cardinal. Thanks to Elizabeth Spencer, Karen Unland, and Mac Mail for helping prep everything for today. Thanks to the Almanac for hosting us and to Chelsea on the soundboard. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Omar Salafu, who helped make a lot of the beautiful episodes that you've heard, is also here. So um, if you are interested in uh, giving someone a pat on the back for the beauty of the episodes that we've made so far, Omar is also a wonderful person to do that too. Uh, thanks to Ask for a Better World and Shafraz Kaba, and to Taproot Edmonton and the Edmonton Historical Board. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting this podcast, especially Finn. You have no idea how much he did to make today happen. <laughs> Original music for this podcast is by the perennially lovely human being, Doug Hoyer. Artwork for our logo by Andrea Hergy at Mount Pioneer Design. That's it for this episode. Until next time, keep your questions coming. <laughs>